Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. We few. We happy few. We band of brothers. Of course, William Shakespeare's Henry V. And band of brothers is a phrase that is often bounded about in living history circles with the usual connection of the fabulous TV series from the early 2000s. However, we're actually going to be talking about neither of those. We're going instead to be talking about a book entitled Band of Brothers, SAS Band of Brothers to be specific. And that book is uh, written by author Damian Lewis. Now, I'm joined with Danny Rees, a very good friend of mine and ardent supporter of Living History UK. And uh, the, the book actually follows a story which, to be honest, is frank, frankly almost unbelievable. I'm sure Danny will uh, touch on that a little bit uh, further. But the story of Sabu 70, that's a codename given to the, uh, the uh, sticker men, uh, which we'll talk about in more detail soon, uh, and their escapades in France during mid to late 1944. Uh, Danny's also a volunteer at the Herefordshire Regiment Museum as well, and does have a deep vested interest in all things SAS during World War II and beyond. So Danny, welcome to this episode of the podcast. And I'm very keen to know, where did you first hear about the book SAS Band of Brothers? Hi, Steve. Thanks for that intro. And yeah, before everyone thinks, the Herefordshire Regimental Museum is not the SAS. We had a Herefordshire Regiment and the SAS in the county. So before people get confused, we are not an SAS museum. But no, my invested interest in the SAS is mainly from, from I, as I class, I'm the original one, the second originals, the 60s and 70s men. I was brought up as a young lad around in Herefordshire, and I was you know, quite young going around people's houses. And they, were, they were men who'd fought a mer battle, had been at the Iranian embassy siege. You know, these were genuine men who'd been at the embassy, not the 7,000 who appear at every show going across the country. But you hear these stories of these men from the 60s who they were trained by the wartime originals 
it's just unbelievable tra- training they'd gone through and experiences that they'd, they'd been to get where they were today to earn their wings, as it were. And obviously that training is is come down the, the line now to the current SES. And you can see in, in the current operations that happened in the first Gulf War in Afghanistan and Iraq, how that training and that legacy of those original out detachment men in, in the North African deserts paid off. Absolutely. From the sort of uh, fledgling uh, sort of flight of L detachment uh, to start off with, for want of a better expression, dare I say, they come 1944 have evolved into uh, a much undistinguishable beast. Obviously, they've lost uh, David Sterling. He's in uh, captivity. He's one of the brainchilds, of course, of the SAS. But moving into 1944, uh, well, in, in fact, in late 1943, the SAS is brought back and it comes to the United Kingdom for the first time. And from there, the SS kind of reformed and there's a few uh, of the big knobs around the table thinking, you know, what we're going to do with this kind of, uh, you know, savage uh, band of marauders and saboteurs, what we're going to do with them, we're going to be invading France soon and what can we do with them? So they kind of hatched this plan and they put the SAS under uh, the Army Air Corps at the time and they stripped them of their uh, famous sand beret and they put a maroon lid on them and they try and re- rebadge them and, re- and rebrand them and rebirth them, if you will. And what they want to do is they want to drop them, don't they, in this uh, kind of uh, huge 2,000-odd uh, strong men to form like a kind of barrier across uh, certain parts of France, drop them all as one to work as a kind of um, typical battalion of men or regiment of men, if you will. Uh, but then the the big knobs of the SAS, Paddy Main uh, and, and Bill Sterling, they, they say, don't know, Daniel, they say, actually, that's not what we're, what we're here for. We, what we do best is we operate best as saboteurs in small bands of um, little sticks of men, uh, ideally with jeeps, you know, fast moving, uh, get in, take the target out, destroy ammo dumps and destroy railway lines. And it isn't until the sort of 11th, 11th hour that the, um, the, the top brass uh, actually say, do you know what? You guys probably know your role best. So uh, come D-Day, this is where the SAS start coming into being in Northwest Europe, following in the footsteps of what they've been doing just so well in North Africa and Italy as well. Yeah, as you say, Steve, the High Command didn't like the L detachment originals. When they came back to Darbell in Scotland and they did started doing large recruitment, they didn't, well, the High Command wanted it to be a regular regiment. And by just up to D-Day, there were about 2,000 men in the SAS, but you know, Paddy Main wanted to keep that original essence of individuality, as it were. There was many cap badges that had formed the SAS and from different backgrounds. They didn't want that to be watered down into just a, another generic parachute unit. So they can't, you know, Paddy Main was well known for doing like 24-hour challenges. You had to get around the country with no money, no vehicle in 24 hours. But he, he wanted that individuality. And as you said, you know, they wanted to drop them in France en masse, which just didn't work. But as small parties, as they'd done in North Africa, had proven that they could actually destroy supply lines and airfields. And as you said, as he dropped them in France, you know, just just before D-Day, that's what they were best at. Absolutely. They, they were indeed. And just looking at some of the names of Sabu 70, so we mentioned Sabu 70 earlier. And just for a little bit of clarity, this is the uh, sort of operational name given to the, the stick of men who... Um, the, the book that sort of uh, revolves around the story of these guys. They they are dropped into France in 44. And they're a real melting pot of of, of nationalities as well, which which has to be said, because you kind of we kind of kind of foolishly, I suppose, with those with little uh, sort of knowledge, very dangerous, I know, fall into trap of thinking the SAS is a, is a fantastic British institution. But 
the stick of men, just picking out some of the, the some of the names which stick out from this book, just off the top of my head, we've got Serge Vakulik, uh, a Czech who uh, actually works his way down through uh, through France and into Spain and falls into captivity a number of times, uh, and then ends up in the UK, and he's brought into the SAS, uh, a very slimmed down version of his story nonetheless. Then you've got uh, V-Hoyer as well. Uh, Ginger Jones, a uh, guy from up in the Northwest, obviously uh, English. But then uh, you've also got uh, Garstan as well, a captain who heroically throws himself in front of the German guns, probably putting a few spoilers in here, but it's worth um, you know, <laughs> sort of doffing the uh, SAS beret, so to speak, to these uh, to these people and saying, you know, it's it's a fantastic melting pot of nationalities that make up this amazing um, story. I, I, you have to pinch yourself and think, actually, the story of these guys is actually real. It's quite scary, isn't it? Captain Garson, especially, he was he was a seasoned man. He'd, we'd won his MC on the retreat from to, to go Dunkirk, you know. And so he, he'd already sinned in his soul, and he's a man who always led from the front. He wasn't afraid of doing that, especially what happens later in the book, which we'll talk about. But, you know, he'd won his MC at Dunkirk. Um, Ginger Jones was, you know, a miner from Wigan. So you can, you, can, you, can, you can guesstimate what his character was like at all times. Again, he was now detachment original. He was a man who had been selected by Sterling in North Africa for that purpose. And probably he was one of the few originals actually in, the, in Sabu 70. But he was, you know, he was a type of bloke he could rely on in those situations. So the, the, the book starts with Sabu 70 on the, you know, prepping themselves for their first journey over to France. So this stick of men, they're getting into these old clapped out uh, Sterling bombers and they're, um, they've got, obviously got all their, their kit on and you can kind of paint that picture in your mind. Many of our listeners know what kit they wore, but they've got their shoots on. They've got all this extra kit with them that they're carrying. I've got all drop containers and so forth. And they're going over in this ramshackle old uh, Sterling bomber and um, they're ready to uh, be greeted on the ground by um, the the well, resistance at the time. And their first attempt to go over, you know, you can imagine getting yourself into the sort of uh, you know, rubber sole boots of these guys and thinking, right, I'm going to drop into France. And our, our job is to work as, you know, stick of you know, 10 to 12 guys, operate behind enemy lines. We're going to wreak havoc. We're going to blow up railway lines, ammo dumps. We're going to be, you know, pretty much, we are going to be on the run all the, the whole time we're over there. And we'll be lucky if we get out. So they've got themselves into this mindset. They've you know, got their rations on board. They're having a crafty cigarette. Someone's forgotten the rum, of course, which is always, uh, never, doesn't go down well. And uh, their first attempt to actually drop into France um, is a failure. They, they don't drop. They can't find the uh, drop zone. They don't get the signal to go in. So they end up turning this bomber back around and they're uh, sort of hit left, right and centre by flak and having to drop altitude and you know, kudos to the the uh, the pilot fantastic job and the account is 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 fantastic it's in the book it reads almost um you know typically like one of those old commando sort of comics this i'll keep saying it but you do have to pinch yourself to think the story of these guys is real and it hasn't even began yet so the first attempts of failure they come back and they go into the uh into the pen as it's called and they they're actually given the order to go back you know you haven't succeeded go go and try again so what happens with this successful uh, well, with the actual second uh, successful drop into France, Danny. Yeah, well, the, the, the second uh, drop, they'd actually mainly the main plan for the second drop was to drop about 20 miles south of Paris, um, near the, the town of Dordogne, where the, the main attack was to knock out the railway and the ammo dumps. And you've got to think now, on the run up to D Day, what are the German forces going to need to counterattack the, uh, the D Day landings? They're going to need fuel and ammunition. Part of the big three, fuel, food and ammunition. That's why you need to keep an army on the road. 
So if they could knock out these supply lines, it was it was it was vital really to the to the success of the opera or the success of the invasion on the whole. So the idea was it would drop just south of uh, Paris and uh, basically attack the railway lines. Now, one of the, one of the you know, old uh, Corporal Vatley, who was with the Free French SAS, actually walked into the local town and asked the local mayor, asked the local train conductor, when's the next train due? Which is quite unbelievable when you think about it and you pinch yourself thinking, will you really have the balls to do that? Walk into the local town and ask when the next supply train's going to come. But he did. He only found out, and luckily he wasn't ratted on because, of course, he knew the the language and he knew local people, so he could get away with it. And uh, basically, they set up their uh, their main ambush, which they knew a supply train was coming. So they set up um, fog signals, which had been supplied to them by, by SOE. And the idea of those these fog signals was that they'd explode before the train would get to uh, to the, the ambush position, so the train would actually derail rather than explode on the line. So if you think about it, if you derail a train, it's actually more of a more of a hassle to remove all the wreckage than the actual uh, exploding it on the point. So they as, did that, but as, as well as setting up these signal uh, fog signals on the uh, railway line, they found the local ammo dump and they set over 50 charges in this ammo dump on a four-hour delay. So the idea was that they'd, they set the charges, they attacked the train, then about an hour or so later, the ammo dump would go up. Again, it's all about uh, mis- misleading any reinforcements coming to the area where the attack was going. So the train comes, they ambush it. Uh, obviously, massive firefight. It's well known in the, well, in the book. It says a gold uh, uh, Ginger Jones, Corporal Ginger Jones, jumped onto the railway line with his Bren at the hip, firing like crazy, which those of you who've had a play with a Bren know it's not easy doing it one man on your own, trying to load mags and fire from the hip. Um, and uh, they basically get away into the night, and then the then the main ammo dump goes up. And the book tells an incredible story of of them blowing up that ammo dump in such detail, where they take out some of the guards as well, and uh, they wait for these charges to go up. All hell breaks loose, and they they're running through um, through the French sort of woodland back to back to their camp, and they're on the run from uh, all these uh, sort of German. Uh, sort of uh, soldiers who are after them and word you know quickly gets around of just how much destruction has been wreaked and I think the penny must have dropped there I say that this wasn't the work of French resistance fighters this was the work of um, what the Germans commonly uh, referred to as you know the the commandos and uh, of course we know the the SAS and we have this uh, famous well dare I say infamous uh, commando order is given and it's it's sort of well documented and it has to be said that these guys who are part of Sabu 70 amongst all the other um, sort of uh, op- operations that are going on throughout France at the time the whole country um, side was littered with little sticks of, of men here there and everywhere pretty much doing the same job as Sabu 70 so this is only a very small drop in the in the ocean so to speak but nonetheless a very important one uh, they knew full well that the commando order existed uh, they were told before they uh, before they left the united kingdom that it existed and they knew that if they were captured they were odds on that they were uh, would would have been uh, killed at the hands of uh, the germans so they escaped escaped the uh, railway derailed this train um, danny's touching it earlier but just to, to reinforce the fact the reason why they're doing this is at the at the time you've got the normandy beachhead has been formed and these troops and armour are, are sort of forcing their way down uh, through and into Normandy uh, with, of course, the objective of ultimately getting through to uh, Germany. And with these little groups and detachments 
of uh, special forces, uh, you know, SAS and the resistance, of course, as well, doing all their little respective jobs through, uh, I'll say little, I mean, they're massive, but all these little detachments, of course, through out France, they're all serving the same purpose. And that's to, to stop troops getting forward into Normandy and coming up and armor being brought up. They're, they're cause, causing havoc. And for the sake of putting 12 guys down uh, somewhere like where Sabu 70 are, they're tying down a couple of hundred troops, at least, you know, vehicles, and they're frustrating that supply of ammunition and the all-important fuel as well. But this is kind of where the story really starts kicking into action, isn't it? So from here, they, they've blown the ammo dumps up the route, uh, the train's been uh, derailed. And for them, that it's kind of mission complete, and they're looking to uh, to exfil. So this next part of the story is um, pretty uh unbelievable uh so probably best you you explaining this one dana well yeah they've done the mission they've now got time to bug out an rv so they've, they've been told their rv is a tomp airfield which which was a bit strange really because the tomp was an active luftwaffe airfield you know there's aircraft there's luftwaffe engineers personnel pilots all on the, on the airfield and they're told to rv at the airfield because it can be picked up on the runway which he thinks absolutely crazy, but no, it'd been done before, especially by SOE with the, with the Lysanders. But in this case, a C-47 Dakota piloted by RAF aircrew lands on the airfield and perhaps brazen on the middle of the runway. I hate to be in the air traffic controller that night because you would think, what, who the heck fix this? But they do a fighting, a, a fighting a retreat onto the aircraft um, and, and they basically get away. But it's, it's just unbelievable. It's just that they, they, this fighting patrol, but what they did as well, which again harps back to the old Al detachment days, days by old Ginger Jones was doing this. He actually planted charges on some of the aircraft on the airfield as a kind of again another diversion. It goes back to the Al detachment days, but it's just unbelievable. Then they take off. It's just unbelievable that they had yeah had the anyway the audacity. Oh, I'll just land on this active Luftwaffe airfield and be picked up. You know, um, it just. Unbelievable. But again, as Steve said, this is not unique. This is happening all over France, you know, and it's basically caused an absolute uproar. You can see in a way why Hitler took took these attacks as a personal a personal attack against him and issued the commando order. The sort of exfiltration from Etamps Airfield was just, a, I was reading it and I was just having to take my eyes away from the page and think, now, these guys have been told that they're they're extracting from an operational Luftwaffe base, which is one of the most bombed bases in northern France. It's also the base that first gets the, um, I think it's the 262, the Messerschmitt 262, uh, 262. Uh, of course, one of the first jet, uh, well, the first jet fighter aircraft that was operational for Germany in the war. So this is a, an airbase that's not just well defended, but it's also got some serious military hardware there as well and it's been long been a target of the RAF and um, the US Air Force as well uh, to, to bomb this uh, airfield and they always bomb it and they think well nothing's we're not really destroying any, anything now these guys who are on the ground the Sabu 70 have actually gone chopped chop their way through the wire and gone in and actually discovered what the Germans have been doing uh, much like uh, the British were doing in the southeast uh, in the run-up to D-Day is they had this kind of uh, uh, sort of netting and fake trees built to disguise all the aircraft. So from the air, you couldn't necessarily see the aircraft and all the sort of gubbins of the airfield. You could really just see in parts the uh, runway. So these guys of Sabu 70 have, have got this information, boarded the Dakota, fighting retreat onto, uh, you know, Dakota, which is just, uh, well, beggar's belief, really. Um, 
and and they take off and they and they're lifted and they're on the way back uh, to Blighty, and um, they're dare I say ready for their next mission, aren't they, Danny? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, I'll never return to the UK. Obviously, they've gone back back to the cage and they've been debriefed by older, our famous Lieutenant Colonel Paddy Main. And... He's just getting this information about a Tom being there to be in two six twos there hidden in a in a, in a camo woods, and he he says, well, basically we've got to hit that next. That's important, you know. Obviously the the jets would just be being starting being absolute pain to the bomber force, but then he decides, right, we're going to have to do it again. So of course, obviously by this time they're looking to to drop near the airfield to to have a go, um, but they're this time they do slightly different. They're actually arranging the drops via SOE. And special operations executive again in partnership with the resistance. They just actually they dropped just outside a small village called La Fertile, which is just uh, you know just out by the airfield. And and they're planning their plan to do is to, to drop land and meet up with the resistance. But as uh, they get onto the land on the airfield, obviously the stick is quite spread around on the drop. A French voice comes up to them and warns them basically the Bosch is in the woods. And what what's that meant by that basically is. By this point in the war, a lot of SOE and the resistance has actually been penetrated by the Gestapo. There's a famous thing called the Funkspieler, the radio games, which the Gestapo had basically captured SOE agents and unfortunately via torture and other methods had got them to work for the Gestapo. And a famous name you'll, you'll, you'll read in the book is about Hans Kiefer, and he was the main coordinator of these Funkspieler. And the idea was to use SOE codes to get the UK, the SOE, the SAS commandos to drop more agents, more supplies. Money was a big thing. Again, they could see the writing was on the wall, so they needed to build up money and basically play the success against the Allies. And the Funkspiel, it worked to deadly effect. Um, what happened when Sabu 70 went in? for their second mission, uh, this mission, of course, to go and um, land and take Tamps Airfield and wreak destruction there, they actually fell straight into the hands of the Gestapo. Um, the Gestapo had played a, a, a terrible game, uh, the Funkspiel, and they they tricked the, the British and the SOE especially in, into uh, uh, sort of falsely thinking that the, the French resistance were ready to welcome them with open arms on the night that they dropped in. Um, but it was a surprise even to the uh, Gestapo who were there waiting for this uh, supply drop, which I thought was coming. It wasn't just supplies. It was actually uh, armed uh, parachutists as well. 
Sabu 70 were dropped in and the uh, Gestapo, they, they opened fire. And it's only the uh, only a handful of men who weren't um, sort of uh, wounded. I think only three guys uh, got away uh, from the drop zone. The rest of them were all eventually captured and a, a couple of the guys were uh, very seriously wounded. So uh, Garstan was um, pretty badly uh, knocked up, to say the least. And so was uh, Vihai as well. Um, just two of the guys who were wounded quite badly. But this is where Vaculit came in, came into play and uh, very quickly wisened up and he uh, sort of used his French to great effect, dare I say, and um, not necessarily got pally with the Germans, but he kind of eased, um, greased the wheels a little bit in terms of um, the, the care of Garstan and uh, Vihai, which was um, you know, fairly, fairly important to say the least. So these guys that they're captured, three of them managed to uh, escape the initial sort of uh, net and they start working their way north. Uh, one guy on his own and two chaps uh, together initially. But then the rest of the stick are all captured in there, brought in by the uh, Gestapo and they are subjected to pretty brutal interrogations and, and beatings. Um, these guys, as I mentioned earlier, they they know all about knew all about the commando order. They there I say knew what was coming, uh, or what was just on the horizon for them. Uh, but it was all uh, a matter of time. So they're taken to a place called uh, Avenue Foch uh, in Paris, and this is where um, there's a very interesting little um, sort of uh, twist in in the story here, which I won't spoil too much because I think you need to read the book to fully understand it. But uh, there's someone in Avenue Foch who uh, actually rears their head. Uh, later in the second part of the, of the book, because it's a kind of tale of two halves, really, in that sense. Uh, we're only just getting to the end of the uh, the first part. But nonetheless, they're taken to Avenue Fock, and these these guys, are, as I mentioned, they're, they're interrogated, they're, uh, they're beaten up, they're uh, not looked after particularly well at all. Uh, Garstan and Vihai, they're you know, wounded. Uh, Garstan, for instance, is, is paralysed from the waist down. He's uh, pretty well uh, knocked up. He's not in a great way, uh, and he's he's refused care, and uh, so he's vihai as well. And they're not given the basic med- medical attention. These guys are, are saying, you know, they're saying we are, you know, we're prisoners of war. You should be treating us as such and giving us, you know, what we're afforded under the Geneva Convention. And the Gestapo are saying, well, you're not. You're uh, you're fallen foul of the the commando order. Really, you are um, in to us. You are spies, and that's how how they treated them, which is. Of course, as shocking now as it would have been uh, during the Second World War. Well, yeah, it just, it just goes to show, you know, for example, good old Ginger Jones, he fights the last round and the, the, the capture and take it to hospital with no treatment is just unbelievable. You think of the Geneva Convention, what we've done similar to German, the Germans that we captured in various operations, it's just unbelievable that they, the levels of depravity that they went to. So, yeah, Hans Kiefer uh, obviously had had in his hands a very valuable prize. He had SAS troopers and officers um, in, in his hands. And he basically contacted uh, Berlin on what to do. And he was basically told the commando order, um, which was the, the summary execution of these, the, these uh, SOE, OSS commando uh, agents, you know. So obviously they're, they're in prison. There's, I won't go into too much because you have to read the book. It's just unbelievable some of the uh, attempts that the chaps tried to... Uh, to uh, escape, as 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 is obviously right, um, but they they're told um, basically that when it, when the time comes that they're going to be uh, taken to Geneva uh, for a prisoner exchange, they're going to be swapped taken to Geneva and swapped for German prisoners, um, 
obviously this is, this all sounds a bit suspect nowadays, but in those days it had been totally believable. Um, so they're given civilian clothing to wear, which again, um, they, they've been in their uniforms now by over a month, no abilities to wash or clean themselves. But what triggered them really was a lot of these civilian clothes were already pre-stained, shall we say, with, with blood and holes, which kind of started getting people, you know, the, the, the chaps to start triggering, going, what, what's, what, this isn't right. And obviously, uh, the good old captain, he was, he was, um, Trying, he'd be trying to play along as it were, but he had his, his doubts. But he still wanted to play along. Again, he wasn't, he wasn't, still wasn't, wasn't, wasn't well. He was still paralysed. But as they were loaded into the lorries and uh, taken along, supposedly to Geneva, they stopped in a small wooded area, and all told to bail out, as it were, to have a have a, a five minute leg stretch and a wee if you need it. Um, but obviously, when the guards pulled out, which I know is quite interesting in the book. It's noticed that the guards pulled out British weapons um, and they were basically, they they knew the game was up then. And to be fair, old Captain Garson, he, he, tells, his, he tells his men that he's going to draw the fire to allow the others to, to escape. And obviously, <laughs> the order is given, so to speak, after a short reading of uh, the commando order. Uh, and uh, the, the deed happens, but they all obviously bolt for it. And the only reason why uh, Bashalik and Jones actually survived is they tripped over because they're given shoes the wrong size, obviously. It's not, you know, tailor-made. But that's the only reason why those chaps, two chaps survived. Um, the others, sadly, were executed. But uh, the uh, two survivors, older, our, our detachment Jones and uh, Bashalik, go off and actually, after a few days, join a resistance unit and aid them with training and coordinating drops. Um, but after the US have come into the uh, area where they, they've helped in the resistance, they actually take it a personal mission to find what's happened to the rest of uh, their team. So they go down to the local, uh, well, local uh, manor house where they know the uh, Gestapo and Waffen-SS have been operating out of, and they find, sadly enough, a mass grave. And the thing that really triggers them off is that they find in one of the outbuildings a pair of Rubber sole commando boots, which he knew would have been belonging to originally one of their members of their, their crew. Um, extremely sad. Um, but that information from that from that grave obviously um, led to the forming of the SES War Crimes Investigation Team. Oh, what an incredible team uh, they were. I mean, they post-war operated uh, underground. It's the, it's the only way of saying it. I mean, officially, they just didn't exist. I mean, the SAS didn't exist, really. It's the easiest way of saying it. And these guys were going out and they were uh, seeking justice for, for their mates. There's no way of saying it. And it's an amaz- amazing job that they did. They were, it's been mooted around. I don't quite know how official it is, but they've, they've been given the title of being the most effective and best uh, Nazi uh, war criminal hunters team in existence uh, post-war. And they certainly did do a good job and they did bring uh, most, well, most all of them who were still alive, that is, so almost all the people who uh, were responsible for this um, this murder uh, of the of Sabu 70, of, of those guys who unfortunately didn't make it in the woods. Uh, they brought them to justice and they were um, you know, put on trial. I think it's a case of you need to read the book to find out exactly about uh, people like uh, Kiefer 
what happened to him post-war, uh, gobsmacked me. There's no other way of saying it. Um, it, it was frankly unbelievable, but there we go. That's uh, how uh, the underground world of uh, sort of, uh, you know, these these agents and so forth and works really. But there we go. Read it for yourself. Uh, definitely the easiest way of saying it because uh, it's uh, frankly unbelievable that it is. But yes, it's it's an amazing story. And I didn't know that the SAS, the war, the war crimes team existed post-war. Um, someone who's interested in World War II as much as I am. I didn't know that. Uh, so that, that was an eye-opening experience uh, for sure. But yeah, um, in summary, I have, to, I have to admit, this is one of the best books I've, I've read in, in a while. I read a lot of books, um, mainly, uh, mainly nonfiction. Uh, but this was, uh, this was absolutely just on another level. Uh, when Danny said to me, oh, you know, you want to snap this uh, book up? It's um, it's a cracker. Give it a read. I took it away on holiday with me down to Cornwall and I read half of the book while I was down there. I was only down there for five days and uh, I read the rest when I came. I couldn't put it down. Um, I think if I, if I could have been reading it while I was driving, I probably would have, but obviously I didn't. Uh, but it was one of those books where you pick it up and you just think, what is going to happen to these guys next? And, and as I've said a couple of times through this, you do have to pinch yourself and think this actually happened to real people. These were real guys who were fighting in one of the you know most bloodiest wars of, of all time, and they were doing everything they could to uh, to beat the Nazi war machine. And boy, did they do it! Oh yeah, exactly. And just a little sub note as well. This, even though this mainly concentrates on obviously uh, the operations in France, the war crimes investigation team, well, you know, obviously the Nazi hunters were also operating in Palestine, Greece, Italy and other countries not officially on the books. Then they, they carried on well beyond the disbandment date in October 45. So it's, it's really, this is basically your window into a very black ops world, well before what we think of current day black ops. But one thing, I have to tip my hat to Damien Lewis, because the way he's put together this book is, you'd think it was, you were there watching it in the film. But what he's done with this is he's actually generated it from a shed load of sources. He's interviewed the families. He's read the official war diary, which covers basic facts and figures. He also had a copy of Vihay's notebook, which he carried on on the operation and letters to and from old comrades and uh, veterans of the veterans of the action. But one thing I like to note as well, I listened to one of his, uh, in one of his interviews that before he even published the book, he sent a draft copy of it to one of the original first SAS men and got him to read it to make sure that it was sound, even though he wasn't on that operation, it was sounding right and it wasn't too far-fetched. He read it, compared the source data's, and it was absolutely spot on. So to, to be fair, I'd actually class this as semi-reference. He's done an absolutely amazing, outstanding job. I've got a couple of books which I'm looking at now on my desk which are lined up um, to help bolster my research and understanding of the SAS during the Second World War. And uh, that was a cracking book to start with, I have to admit. And I'm, uh, I know that Damien Lewis has uh, written a number of books on the SAS during uh, World War II, amongst other periods as well. And they are uh, very quickly... Uh, filling up my bookshelf I have to admit but SAS Band of Brothers uh, it's it's available to order so you can get it from pretty much any decent uh, book retailer uh, including Amazon it's probably the cheapest one at the moment uh, I will pop a link uh, to uh, that Amazon listing in the description of this episode and uh, thanks Danny for joining us uh, for, joining me for this episode I should say of the Living History UK podcast and uh, yeah if you guys have enjoyed listening to this uh, 
you know, give us give us a follow on uh, on the podcast. Uh, give us hit the little notification bell. You'll get uh, notified about when the episodes are out first. Also, you can come and see us at the Victory Show. So we're going to be at the Victory Show in September, and we are actually going. Funnily enough, going to be portraying uh, the first SAS uh, during Operation Wallace. So we'll have a couple of jeeps there with us and uh, all the kits and gubbins. So if you come up to us and see us and say, you know, keep history alive, then uh, we'll let you in the inner sanctum and you can have a good nose around all the kit and get a better understanding of uh, what the guys carried, wore, ate and used during uh, that period of military history. So if you have enjoyed this episode, uh, consider sending us a uh, donation via PayPal. It does help us to keep the podcast going. It's uh, unfortunately very expensive for us to uh, keep hosting, uh, but your kindness does keep it going. So thank you very much. And uh, for now, it's uh, bye from me. It's bye from me. And we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Living History UK podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive.